Hi, and welcome back to Glittering a Turd. I'm honoured that you're back, actually. Um, I'm not just saying that. As you probably know, there's an ocean of podcasts these days. So the fact that you're giving mine a listen is really, really cool. Today's intro uh, comes from a hotel room in Birmingham. What can I say? I have a really glamorous life. And on the train here, I listened back to today's episode with a massive grin on my face. Today's chat was my very first recording. Um, in fact, it was the pilot for this podcast. And I had no idea if I'd be any good at this podcast hosting malarkey. But actually, to be honest, I didn't even care because I was getting to chat to one of my mates, Sophie Morgan who I've known for over 10 years and we've never had a chat like this before and you'll be able to tell from this recording I was really really excited and I think quite nervous you'll also discover from this conversation what a badass awesome vibrant human Sophie is you'll also discover why both me and Sophie find the word inspirational quite problematic okay that's all for me i'll let you have a listen so enjoy welcome sophie <laughs> so oh my god oh. here we are here we are at long last we rarely get the chance to really catch up and chat and i'm so glad that i mean it's taken a podcast for actually for our busy lives to conspire to be together for this chat today um so thank you so much thank you it's, so much it's such an honour and such a treat. I couldn't think of a better person to tell me about their turd. And so I want you to explain in your own words what the turd or what we perceive the turd might be, but it might not be the turd. (laughs) And I think we'll get to that later. But essentially, what is the turd that we're talking about today? Okay, so the turd we're talking about was handed to me when I was 18 years old. And I had just left school. I had been out of school for maybe two, three months. So I'd done my A-level results. I had left and I had been away for a few months. I was living life as you do at that amazing time in your life when you're just about to go off into the world and you're super excited, your arms should be open wide and you know you're looking forward with such anticipation to what's next. And I went to Scotland, which is where I was at school. I didn't live there. I lived down south with my parents, but I was I went to Scotland to collect my A-level results. And the night that I did that, there was a party um, not far from where I was at school. And all of my friends and I gathered there to celebrate. And that night I drove home. And when I, well, not to my home, I drove to the home we were staying at, um, which coincidentally happened to be the home of the boy I was slightly in love with, well, not slightly, completely in love with, and, um, uh, and it was not far from where we were having the party. And I drove home, and on the drive, I lost control of my car, and I crashed it. And in the impact, I presume, we don't know for certain, but very likely I was instantly paralysed from the chest down. So 
when I recover, woke up in hospital three or four days later, no chance of recovery of any mobility or any sensation from that level down, which is quite a big turd because mm-hmm. often, especially today, that type of injury doesn't really happen. You get what you call we call incomplete paralysis. So you 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 tend to regain a bit. But unfortunately, my turd was a complete turd, as they call it, <laughs> complete paralysis. So I um, I woke up in hospital with paralysis, but also, unfortunately, in the crash, I had also damaged quite a lot of my face and body. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of um, confusion and disorientation because the pain was coming from not so much my back, where where the damage was done. That was almost you know, nothing. I didn't really feel anything there. It was the pain in my face and my nose had been crushed in. My jaw had been broken and dislodged. My cheekbones had been crushed. My eye had almost fallen out, I think. Socket had been crushed. Skull had gone, been crushed as well and collarbone snapped. So there was all this significant sort of turding all over my face as well. So yeah, it was quite, it was quite a lot. And that was, yeah, when I was, I was 18. And you're now 36. I am. We are so, the same age, right? We are, yeah. Babe. So half of your life. Yeah. So I, I last summer, I think it was last August. Yeah, I celebrated my 18 anniversary, and I say celebrate, and we'll get to that, right? But I marked the 18 year anniversary, so that's 18 years paralysed. And I mean, 18, it's so hard. I think sometimes I often think, well, um, yes, there was a before turd life, mm. but mine was at the age of 22, 23 when um, you're already, when life is already very, diff- like it can change very quickly anyway, mm. at the best of times. Um, so it's hard to kind of think, well, what would my life be like if I'd stayed uh, the, way I wa- yeah. w- the way I was? So, and from reading your book, right, I, what I love most about it is discovering who you were before the car crash. Really? I was so fascinated to know who Sophie was, and you were such a fucking rebel. <laughs> I you oh my god. Um I um we wouldn't have been friends. <laughs> really? I would have been terrified of you, you at school. <laughs> terrified. You were such oh, a I was ter- I think I'd be terrified of me if I met me. Right. Honestly. What yeah. was I like? Um well I I, I love reading about it. <laughs> but what um I was interested in is what you think the person that you were before the crash, mm. how do you think that aided in the person that you became? I think it's such a hard question, but important question, because I do feel... Can I just say, firstly, thank you for reading my book. <laughs> You're welcome. I have it's to say, absolute dream. as somebody who's just written a book, yeah. I know that you know what that means. Yes, yes. It's so huge. Yeah, and I'm, so you're huge. like one of the first people out there. And Chris, I can't tell you. I could cry thinking about it, oh, how much oh. it means. So thank you. And so, okay, to the question. I think the 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 reason I wanted at the beginning of my book to start off by painting the picture of who I was because the reason I did that was because I needed when my injury happened to give context to the loss that I experienced Mm -hmm. now that's not to say that you know there are scales of loss and for me it was harder than it would be for somebody else who had my injury what it meant was the the suffering that I then went on to have to deal with or the the complexity of the turd um was so much so I needed you to understand that the girl I was and then the turd I had been given was such a monumental one because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're reading in the book hopefully if, if whoever's listening reads it I and gets through this beginning bit because I honestly I cringe I cringe mm-hmm. that I open my story mm-hmm. with this 
character who I'm I was. So, so I'm glad like, you did. guys, please get through this. Please stay with no, me. Please stay I'm with me. Uh, <laughs> I was hooked on that bit. Really? Completely. Yes. It's just because I was a free spirit. Yes. I was a. I was one of the, those girls that I think if you were a grown woman like I am now, you know, a 36-year-old looking at me, I'd be like, God, Jesus, girl, calm down. <laughs> yeah. You know, but that's who I was. And actually so much so that when I had my crash, I remember somebody saying, it's not surprising. Mm. It's not surprising. And I thought, mm-hmm. fair play, you know, yeah. fair enough. And yeah. I was. And so when, so when I start to deal with the reality of what's happened to me, I had to reconcile all of the parts of the identity that I had mm-hmm. with this new identity. And I say in the book something that I wrote and I couldn't believe it when I wrote it because I hadn't really ever consciously thought it. I said I was the first disabled person that I ever met and I was. And unfortunately, all of the ideas that I had mm-hmm. about what disability is yeah. fed into what happened when I met myself. And who I was and who I was going to be were not, they were not even in the same, you know, universe. Mm-hmm. I could not, mm-hmm. the girl there and the girl now, you know, the wheelchair girl, the, the paralyzed girl, all of those things. And the girl I was just like, they would have hated each other. Mm-hmm. So there I was, yeah. <laughs> you know. What I noticed is that you talk about the before Sophie in third person in your book. Do you find that weird? No. Okay. I just want to know why. Okay, so <laughs> I read it in your book, but you didn't do the same. Well, you kind of did. At the end of your book, you wrote to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I read it, I think, did you post it before it was in the book? Because I remember it, yes, it was like... it was my 10-year like, cancerversary. Yeah, and honestly, I'm getting goosebumps since thinking about it. You wrote to yourself in the way that I often think of myself, mm-hmm. which is, hi, Sophie, mm-hmm. that you, that yeah. girl yeah. that didn't know... In your words, mm-hmm. you are at the foothills of some mm-hmm. serious shit. Yeah. Can yeah. I swear? Yes, we're okay, swearing great. on this. On that note, you don't know you're at the bottom of the, yeah. you know, this, this, this yes. foothills. And I, but the reason why I also put her in the third person, I know it sounds weird, but I think it's just because there were so many physical, physicalities that we sh- we don't share. Yeah. And also mentally, and I know you'll understand that, that mentally we've grown so much and I, I know that everybody looks back, and I do say this in the book, everybody looks back at their past selves and perhaps feels there's a space and, and you know, thinks, oh, little you, what do you know what's about to happen mm-hmm. or whatever. But I think for people like us who, at that young identity-forming stage, when this tur gets dealt to you, I really feel before that I was a very different person but no I loved that you referred to her as her this it's almost like you throughout the book but also throughout your last 18 years you've finally accepted that you're leaving her at that 18 year old stage and you know I have to say again this is something that you'll recognize I'm sure when writing the book I learned stuff about myself Mm Which is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. You know. You think you've learned everything and, and then you, you write you a know. book. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I got to the end of my book and I was trying to figure out how to end this book. Because mm. we're not dead yet. Yeah. Right? We've just, I mean, I actually messaged you, I remember, saying, isn't it amazing? We're 36 and we've, we're writing a book about yeah. our lives. Like, yeah. we, we don't, yeah. you know, it's, there's been a lot going on, right? Yeah. And so how about how do we end it? Mm. Because there's no, we're not dead yet. Yeah. So I was like, how do I finish where do I get to? And I brought readers right up to where I am. Anyway, in the final chapter, 
I find myself having a playing out a fantasy of a role that, of a game that I never d used to do, which is what would have happened if I hadn't had my accident. Yeah, and I get, I bet you get asked that. I get it asked all the time, Chris. Normally, it's the first thing that people ask me, and I know that you won't be that clumsy because <laughs> it's just pointless. Yeah, but I did it. I did allow myself to indulge in that fantasy, and I said, right, okay, so what would I do? And um, I found myself at the very end of the fantasy thinking long and hard about her and me sitting in a room together. And I actually thought, do you know what? I used to be really jealous of her. And I used to be like, oh, God, she wouldn't like me. She would think I'm this, like, poor little disabled person. And I was like, do you know what? She can fuck off. She can fuck off. <laughs> and also, she would like me now. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, she would, she would have respect for me. And she would be... So I was like, okay, I've earned that. And I've got here. And so 18-year-old little me, mm -hmm. the young me, or, like, the old me can can stay there as she is and I am my own self now yeah. and I know we all go through that sort of growing up but it's very remarkable I think for me to do that for with my 18 year old self yeah. and and be cool with it and yeah. now I'm like right bring it on you know yeah. what I mean <laughs> yeah I mean I loved how you uh, yeah indulged in that fantasy yeah do you, I mean, I, uh, something do you do, do you, yeah because this is the, I think I suppose a question so perfect to explore in this platform in this space is, you know, our turds define us. Mm -hmm. And they don't. And they do. And they don't. And yeah. then they come to us and they land with us. And what will be so fascinating as you go through this whole experience of exploring other people's turds is I think the, the, the common thread will undoubtedly be you wouldn't change it. Mm -hmm. But that's so I hard for people to get to. Yeah, I know. And I think I will hear that time and time I again. I think you will. and But people don't believe it, right, Chris? No. And I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't believe it. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, if I could just not be paralyzed, ooh, what would I yeah. do? Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. I'm allowed to think that. Yeah. And still be okay with my disability and yeah. go, actually, I love it. Yeah, you can exist it's, in it's both okay spaces. Have, the paradox yeah. can yeah. be real. And paradox mm -hmm. is what makes life worth living. Yeah, we're, we're the enlightened ones. Hell yes. Um, <laughs> I just want to rewind a little bit because I think we've got ahead of ourselves um, and it's great. Um, but back, back to the looking at who you brought into the paralyzed yeah. version of you not i don't that, that's yep. obviously one okay. way of defining you but that's yeah. not all um is that you say that you knew about willpower and you knew about breaking the rules mm -hmm. yeah um yeah. and i think and then but then how do you think breaking the rules has helped with this and i and then uh, and and how essential has that been yeah. in order to live as a disabled person in today's society i think i so that's such a, a defining part of who I am. That so, so so a lot of what I lost in in becoming disabled, I realised there were a number of traits that stayed with me. That being one of them, this mm. sort of defiance and like, fuck you, no, hey, yeah. don't yeah. fucking tell me no, you know. <laughs> a, I was a privileged little shit, but B. I was so headstrong and like I was like, no, no, don't tell me that. So when I re-entered the world um, about four, three, three months or so after my injury and I started to encounter these very real barriers, I mean, not just physical barriers, which people can imagine and, uh, and can easily um, ex sort of uh, expect, you know, old steps and the obvious stuff mm -hmm. that you would imagine for a wheelchair user. 
the other barriers that were there were so hard for me to navigate and a lot of them were attitudinal. The stigma around, you know, these things are really sound cliche, but people assuming they couldn't talk to me, they talked to the person I was with or that mm -hmm. I couldn't come in to the space that we were in or that I wasn't welcome. And I was only a kid, really. And so I was trying to get into kids' spaces. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to be in the clubs. I wanted to be mm -hmm. in the bars mm -hmm. and at the house parties and the places where I was very unwelcome and there was very little um, space created for me, you mm -hmm. know, literally physically or, or, or um, emotionally. So when that started to happen in all the areas of my life, yes, at first, honestly, it took every ounce of fuck you mm -hmm. to get through. Mm -hmm. But if I did have enough of that yeah. in reserves to go... Ooh, fuck off, I'm going to get there, I'm going to yeah. get there. And yeah. I think, thank God, because uh, it then started to shift into the rule-breaking around perceptions that were inhibiting me from succeeding in not just my social life and, like, you know, with my peers and, and with my fa family friends and stuff like that, but in life. Do you yeah. think that there was a lot, so much focus on what you can't do and oh, no one has really ever focused on what you can? Yeah, and I know that you've had that same mm. experience yeah. where people... I think we do it to ourselves, but I think the people around us, especially, I don't know if this happened in your experience, I think it did, in the medical profession, there's a lot of, now these are the things you can't do anymore. Yeah. And I think that's both healthy and unhelpful because that going into the world, I was very mollycoddled and wrapped in cotton wool, like you're disabled, you can't do these things. Mm -hmm. And I left firstly with a bit of a fingers up like don't tell me what I can't do because yeah. I was like <laughs> authority you, so you know like it's like my teachers I'm like don't tell me I can't yeah, do that yeah but also I mean I had those stigmas in my own yeah. mind I was like yeah can disabled people do that yeah it's so know. stifling yeah and and life became this long list of mm. you can't do that you can't do that you can't mm -hmm. do that that when I started to realize well you can or there's yeah. a way around yeah that became the life force yeah and it's I don't know if you feel this, but I really recognise that that's been one of my reasons for living. And um, there is no guidebook on how to deal with whatever turd you might be thrown. Um, and no one can really ever prepare you for what life might throw at you. But when you were um, in hospital, you were given something that you called the Manual of Doom. <laughs> um, what was that? And um, I'm interested to know if there was any mention at all about your mental health. Yeah. I re I re when going back into writing the book, I went through all my diaries. Mm -hmm. And I kept a hell of a lot of diaries. Um, and... I, I kept referring to this manual and it, I, I contacted the hospital. I was like, what is this manual? What, I can't really remember. It was just a folder. And they were like, yeah, yeah, it was a workbook. Mm -hmm. And basically what it was at the time when I was being rehabilitated in the spinal unit, they there was what we called your education. And in that folder that they, they gave every single patient, it was an outlining, a kind of explanation almost like a scientific breakdown, like a, like a biology lesson of what spinal injury yeah. was, right? Wow. Yeah. So it would go through the, the explanation. So paralysis is this. This is what's happened. Your body... Could, so the, the secondary complications that come with spinal cord injury are, you know, for example, if you're paralysed from the level that I'm paralysed from, you will have functionality in your hands and your arms, but you will not have functionality in 
below the level of your um, damaged in your vertebrae, which is the technical term for me was, I learned all of this, the thoracic six, mm-hmm. so you, your, your spine. So it's, it was the medical terminology around my injury. Mm-hmm. And these are all mm-hmm. implicit in the moving and the feeling. But what are the other things? You can't tell temperature. You can't tell pressure. Mm-hmm. So these sort of things started to get unpacked. Then there was the question, the the, the sections about how to manage those complications so this is how you use a catheter this is how you uh, move your legs this is how you pressure relieve those sorts of things were very much um, put in black and white but what really was lacking was that conversation around okay so you're a young woman and how do you how do you deal Mm -hmm. so to your answer there was very little about mental health I think there must have been some but not enough and also I should also be very clear that I grew up in a house where those sorts of things were not very... I want to be careful here because they were tolerated, but they weren't really discussed. Mm-hmm. And so my my mum and I were very pragmatic, strong women at the time. And that sense of like, you know, you can get through this. You just need to... You, once you've got sense of what you can and can't do here in the hospital, you just get home and we'll deal with the rest. And it was like... So it, it, it was. So I hate using the word strong because there's not. There's no. That's not what I mean necessarily. A strong. It was more like defiant um, about mm-hmm. my mental health. It's like she'll she'll be fine. She just needs to teach her how to get in and out of the wheelchair, yeah. and then she'll be cool. Yeah. So my mental health really suffered, and I there was a, a counselor that came through. Okay. But I didn't have. I was very scared, Chris, of talking to someone about uh, my spinal injury honestly, mm-hmm. and them not understanding it. And them just giving me this sort of fake platitudes right. back of this is trauma, this is how you deal with it. Because I'm yeah. like, I needed someone, and unfortunately there wasn't anybody there who had a spinal injury too, who yes. perhaps was a woman yes. or could identify because I didn't have that. And I was like, I'm not going to talk to you about my shit because you, you, you can't handle it. it. Yeah. And I'm sorry, that's that was yeah. too scary. Yeah, yeah, sometimes it's so, it's even scarier to do face something that you know isn't potentially going to help and it's going to make you feel even worse. But yeah, it, I was just so shocked that in the book you don't really talk about how you just, ex- I don't know, you just expect that someone comes into your life and says, what yeah. you've experienced is huge. Yeah. Tell me how that feels. Yeah, it just didn't and happen. I, I, that blows my mind. But I think it was a different world, Chris. I yeah. do think now. Now it's different. I, I don't think, know. Yeah. I couldn't mm. say. Well, I should I, check, but well, I think it probably would be. Well, if, even after, you know, my cancer diagnosis from 13 years ago, um, uh, even now, after a terminal diagnosis, you're not then brought into another room where someone says, "How does that make you feel?" I mean, you might have a nurse who's assigned to you who says, "It's a different thing." Yeah, it's a yeah. different thing. It's, it's the physicality very... and the mentality get merged, and don't they? And and I think people ex- people uh, confuse m- physically recovering with mentally coping, yeah, yeah. and they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just because maybe you're getting better or you're so showing signs of recovery, that doesn't mean it mentally yeah. you've got your shit together, yeah. no, <laughs> does it? <laughs> absolutely not. Um, so you had lots of people in your life that helped you deal with your new life, really, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Um, but how did those relationships change? Oh, in every way. Mm-hmm. And I saw that so... I'm going to say this so many times, I'm sure, but the similarities in your story and from what I know of your life, and I'm sure this is, again, these are some other common threads that you'll find with other turd bearers, (laughs) (laughs) is 
all of the relationships in my life changed. Some for the better, some for the worst. The one with my mum was the most fascinating. Mm -hmm. She was an extraordinary sense of, uh, like, she was this pillar of unbelievable strength. She was a nurse before she had me. So she had this armory of understanding around what exactly was physically happening yeah. to me before I did. Mm -hmm. And she was amazing. And um, the woman she was before my injury really came into play. And I got to know her as a woman, mm -hmm. which was an amazing thing to experience at 18. Because bear in mind, at that age, I had no intention of hanging around with my mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, bye, yeah. I'm going now. Yeah. I've done my stuff. I'm, I'm leaving the nest. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I was back yeah. with her and... Thank God it was her. She was incredible. And she, so she, so that relationship became incredibly important, perhaps too compliant, too um, enmeshed. We didn't really have any boundaries that, that took a while to unravel a while later. It took a long, lot longer for her to let go. Um, in many ways, I don't think she still, she still can't. Like mm -hmm. I say, off, I notice often still, she doesn't sleep past. 4am which is when the phone call came to, to wake her up to tell her that I was injured so she's got that trauma still yeah. in her my family relationships became severed and complicated and then stronger mm -hmm. relationships with men well that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> that's a whole other chat that was really challenging yeah. relationships with my friends I just don't even know how to put that into words when you get the experience of testing your friendships and not intentionally yeah. and then they're tested and they stand the test yeah oh it makes you feel better yeah. than anything it's like oh the best gosh. medicine in the yeah. world but you talk a, a little bit about how you're basically you're having to manage other people's emotions before you even get a chance to think about what you were going through yeah i i don't know if that's normal if that's there's something to do with my age i don't know but yeah, the whole way through. Well, no, I've definitely yeah. been there. I've absolutely had and it, to try and... Did it help you? Because it it sort... Yeah, did it help it, you? I think it's a great distraction yeah. from your own misery. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh, you're suffering. Oh, let me heal that wound before I, you know, look at my own. But it yeah. just never really solves your own. And are you at the point now where you're like, you can do you? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, now, now, absolutely. I, I think I've got way better boundaries also maybe to the point of like literally giving no shit yeah. um yeah. but uh i confessed yeah amazing uh, i i my how long has it taken you to get there 13 years <laughs> <laughs> there we go literally this epiphany happened yesterday um <laughs> today <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um do you think writing the book helped you oh, cool. um yeah. And had you tried, I mean, obviously you talk about um, that you wrote lots of diaries, mm. but why now? Was it because you'd lived with um, your injury for half your life, so now was a good time to write it? Like, why now? Why yeah. have you written about it now? I think because, so I hadn't tried to write a book before, and I hadn't really any intention. Like I said earlier, like, I wasn't at the end of my life, so I felt yeah. I didn't have a conclusion. Yeah, memoirs <laughs> feel very odd at, at our age. Don't they? Um, but then... I mean, I keep spouting that it's not the years in the life that you lead. It's the life and the years that you it's that, that is important. Yeah. And if that's true, then it doesn't matter what age you are when no. you write a memoir. I, I, and some <laughs> of my greatest, favouritest books are mm. of stories of people that are still around. Yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. So I get you. But I did feel a bit like, wait, hold on. You know, what the fuck you haven't you're not there yet. And yeah. also because I haven't got my shit together yet. Oh, I'm like, okay. right. I've got a lot 
to work out. And I realised in the book that... So I'll answer the question first. Yes, no, I hadn't thought about writing a book. And I wrote it because the the lockdown happened and I had been planning to ride a motorbike from an adaptive motorbike, just to be clear. It's like a three-wheeled... Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an adaptive motorbike, it's a trike. Um, and I was going to be riding it from uh, India to Tokyo. It was going to be this amazing adventure, right? And I was literally just about to set off. We were even... Fil- it was being going to be filmed for Channel mm-hmm. 4. We were literally just started filming... And I've been working to this project for about three years. I've been trying to get it off the ground and green lit. And it had just been a really real labour of love. And we got there. And I had approached a literary agent to, to talk about writing the story of that. And so I had I had kind of stepped into the, oh, I could potentially write about something. And then the lockdown happened. I lost the show. I lost my job. I lost all of my TV presenting work. And I was shielding. And I was like, oh, my God, I need something. I need something to do. I need something to do. What am I going to do? So I spoke to my literary agent I was like can can we salvage something here can we do something what can we do and she put forward some proposals we worked them up and then I got the book deal so that's why I did it I think more than anything it was like I need something to do because mm-hmm. I can't just I'm not very good at sitting still yeah I mean so many amazing books got written during the global pandemic but also Chris <laughs> like you said I mean make your life harder why yeah. don't you yeah. what, write it during a pandemic yeah. like yeah I, I yeah I dealt with a lot of like how should I be writing about myself and yeah. the world is falling to pieces? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that's just because we're very conscious of the world around us. I want to pose the question, what is the real turd here, really? Is it not walking or is it society's perception of you? Um, and did you feel a certain amount of pressure to show the world that you weren't a victim in all of this? Yeah, it's the best question I've Hands down, ever been asked. Ah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, it is such an important <laughs> bloody question. Well, it, and no it, one it gets is. to ask yeah. it, Chris, because no one understands it. Yeah. So I really thank you for asking it. And um, it is such a difficult question to answer at the same oh, time. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Because yes, yes, yes. it is... Isn't it so nuanced? It's so nuanced. Yeah. And so I think mm, the turd, um, I would say, was actually my attitude to disability which could be therefore extended to other people's um and the the general perceptions the stereotypes around disability and then specifically around wheelchair users and then perhaps layer that up with women who are wheelchair users um i i found i came into the you know that the paralysis is manageable i often find myself saying the least of my concerns is not being able to walk. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's really the last that thing comes on my a, that, mind. Comes, that comes across very strongly in the book. Yeah, like, and I really want to hammer that yes, home. Yes. Because that's the... Le- and I, I don't think I'm alone in saying that. I, I, I will definitely not say I'm representative of people with my disability ever. I, I don't like that people do that. Um, and I will say that very, very much repeatedly that I, you know, everyone comes to this very differently. But my experience is walking is literally the last thing that matters. It's yes, it's my own attitudes to myself. And that's taken me, you know, what we call internalized ableism. Mm -hmm. It's taken me years to work out where is it that there is this problem? Where is the chasm? So, for example, you know, I I denied to myself a lot of my my disability because I refused to be defined as disabled. It wasn't until later in life when I started to see other disabled people really identifying as disabled Mm -hmm. and saying that word Mm -hmm. 
loud and proud mm-hmm. that I started to go, oh, shit, it's okay to be proud to be like this. Mm-hmm. And hell yeah, mm-hmm. I am actually. Hold on, mm-hmm. I am proud of my... I'm proud of this, you know, and that that took almost ten years. Yeah, and and you say that um, the Paralympics in 2012 yeah. made a massive impact in that as well. It did. It 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 was the first time I'd seen disabled people celebrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will go on in the book and also now to say that I think there's problems with the perceptions around the Paralympics mm-hmm. in itself yes. because it proliferate it it sort of reinforces that trope around disabled people are inspirational yeah. and disabled people are superhumans and yeah. that's problematic yeah. but it really was pivotal for me as a disabled person to see that representation of disabled people and go holy shit I could yeah. be not that I could be a Paralympian hell no I don't have the discipline but I did see that go oh my god disability can be a, it can be a trait to be proud of it can be something to be not ashamed of and and that that was life changing and so so the turd in your so the paralysis for sure was a turd i would be stupid to say i don't i would rather you know having my disability taken away wouldn't be you know I would and I wouldn't. This is the thing. Yes. I'm stumbling yes. over my words yeah. here. Yeah. So yeah, because there is no de- clear cut answer here. It's very, very close to, to being the truth that actually the real turd in all of this is other people's ideas of what this yeah. means, what this life is. Yeah. yeah. I love in the book, I'm, I'm just repeating lines in your book, but back to you <laughs> because um, I am the book's mega fan now. It's the people who think we need fixing that need fixing. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, what I got a sense that it was the fear, was the fear of being paralysed is more paralysing than paralysis yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah, and that is such a, a revelation. And I think I'm just so glad that you're putting that out there. I'm so so glad. Um, and and another and and this takes me to the the word inspirational because you're just talking about the Paralympics and like yeah we're putting these to our perception unable bodies mm. on this amazing platform and this stage. Mm. Another something that you say in the book. Oh God, this is just like literally um, all the best things about the book. Being called inspirational is like revealing that society has such little expectations of disabled people. Yeah, I. I mean, whoa, light bulb! Like, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And um, why has it taken so long for I, us to realize that? It's really, it's really, oh, it's. I'm. Do you know what? I'm. I suddenly feel really proud that. You get it because that means I explained it. Oh my god! Because I find you did. it. Yes. Well, of course you bloody get it. You, of course you bloody do. <laughs> but I mean, like, what I mean is, I find that really hard. To, I found it really hard to explain. So some, yes. I, I, I do it really clumsily. But a lot of the time, people are like, "You're so inspirational." I'm like, "Shut up." Yes. They're like, "I'm trying to be nice." Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is yeah. where we get into and any and this is not new. This is not my thinking. This is people are well aware of this. Impact and intention are very different things. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the word inspirational, when it comes from a non-disabled person to a disabled person for doing seemingly very, very little. Mm-hmm. So I'll give an example. You know, going, I, I, I said this in the book, I think, um, I, was just, I was literally just going from a table where I was having dinner with a friend across the restaurant to the toilet, disabled toilet. And this woman was like, I'm just going to stop you there. And I was like, yeah, yeah, is everything right? You're so inspirational. And I honestly, that, okay, yeah. the reason, now I'll explain what I mean by this. The reason why that's insulting is, firstly, she doesn't know 
anything about my life. So what's the context for this? Secondly, why does she think I'm inspirational? What am I doing here? I'm going for a wee, right? So so we got to unpack it. And basically the, what, I'm, what I try to, to articulate, and it's done very, very well by this fantastic speaker, disability advocate called Stella Young, who, who I would encourage anyone to watch. She did a TED talk on this very thing called inspiration porn. Mm. It's brilliant. Okay, yeah, great. It's basically that when you use that word inspiration, you need to really look at what you're being inspired to do. Mm-hmm. Because technically, I'm not inspiring that woman. I'm just changing her perceptions of like, I'm an independent disabled disabled girl going to the toilet by herself. And that's shifted her perceptions mm-hmm. of what her expectations of what I can do. Yeah. And in that moment, she's revealed to me, she doesn't think I should be in a restaurant having dinner with okay. a friend going to the loo. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And that's harmful. Yeah. It's harmful. Yes. And the impact that has on the person is like, well, you know, you're, you're, it's just so belittling and patronising. And I don't mind if someone says to me, uh, like, if you said to me, Chris, you're inspiring me to be more grateful the fact that I can go cold swimming, cold water swimming. Yes. Babe. Yeah. Mate. Yeah. That I'm like, thanks, Chris. Or I'll say to you, Chris, you've inspired me to take care of my body more and be grateful for yeah. okay my yeah. health right absolutely that is though that the word is absolutely safe and appropriate yes. and it should be handed out like a medal it's mm-hmm. not it should be thrown willy-nilly yes. <laughs> no, yep 100% with you and obviously uh, people I think people are more than aware that the word inspiration is banded out all the time Isn't when it comes it? to cancer but it goes with you right yeah it massively you. massively and um and I say time and time again, I say the same things as you, is if I've inspired you to do something yeah. good for your body, for your great. health, for your well-being, great, yeah. call me that. But if I, if me having cancer is yeah. inspirational, then, yeah. then that, I mean, it means nothing. Yeah. And and it, it's almost like you're giving cancer, the, the, my body who's that has developed cancer for one reason or another mm. that we will never understand, mm. um, it's not a badge of honour. It's a disease yeah. that's happened to me. And I think a lot of what we're now perpetuating is this like pressure to become something that we're not when we're diagnosed with an illness. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and, and to the word you used earlier, not be the victim. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, that's okay. no, be <laughs> whatever <laughs> you want to be. Yeah. Wallow if you want to wallow. Um, that, I think, is inspirational. Being yeah. yourself, truly being yourself yeah. and being in that moment and allowing all your feelings, that's inspirational. Uh, owning the way you react. <laughs> yes. Being, uh, you don't have to be excel and be a superhuman. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be the warrior. You don't yeah. have to be the survivor. Yeah. You can be the person who doesn't want to get out of your bed. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. So, Sophie, yes. um, this is the bit of my, po- my podcast where I get you to share and and talk about an item or a thing that you think has helped you deal with said Okay. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think, I think the greatest learning I've come away with is about comparative suffering. I don't think it helps anyone to rank different types of suffering and different types of lives and put them in categories of this is worse, this is better. Well, that's easier, that's harder. Mm-hmm. We m- must not do that. I think it exists in some of our friendships and sometimes, you know, oh, she's having a harder time because of this or, actually, you know what, I'm not going to talk about my hard time because her hard time's worse. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that stops so many of us being honest with each other. I also think it, it has the reverse effect of putting people in boxes that we don't want to exist within, basically. So I think, I hope that makes sense. Yes. I'm just, I'm, wor I'm working it out as I go, but not the answer, but that concept. Yeah relative, um, comparative, uh, just comparing your suffering. I just don't think it really helps. Um, and your suffering is valid. Yeah. You know, it's okay. Yes, there might be starving children in Africa, mm -hmm. but you're, you're having a bad day is okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so that, gosh, it's oh my gosh, so, so hard. No, uh, yeah, yeah, no. That's so sorry. But also I love it. Sorry. Yeah, no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you say, it's the good kind of hard, right? <laughs> it's the good kind of hard. Um, and the thing that got me through, okay, a thing, a physical thing, hands down, for me, it was a postcard that arrived when I was going through a really, really bad time in my life, really, really, really me mentally the worst I've ever been. A postcard with Frida Kahlo arrived on it. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed my life. Really, it did. That's not an exaggeration. No, she I mean, was amazing. Yeah. So a painting, so a painting of Frida Kahlo's painting, I've got a number of them, but I've got one in particular. It's called the Broken Column. And that is my item that can get me through most things. Yeah. If I'm really struggling, I just look at that painting. Yeah. It's on my wall. It sounded so significant when you talked about it in the book. Yeah. It, she had a way, I call her the patron saint of the disabled. She probably would hate that, but she came down into my life. She like landed and appeared. And I couldn't, I couldn't get over it she just spoke to me in a way that I had never really had anyone speak to me like before she her stuff around disability her stuff around coping with her suffering and also just she she's been described as her art has been described as a ribbon around a bomb mm. and because it's so delicate and beautiful yeah. but in inside it's just this boom this strength and she describes herself again as fragile but not like glass like fragile like a bomb and I was like Fuck yeah, that's that's the best ever. We can be fragile, but we can be very much like we can change things yeah. and and we can be strong enough. And all of our strength is what brings us around. And I mean, these are all real cliche things. And I hear I hear people say them, but I'd never seen it mm. in reality. I'd never seen someone someone's experience of yeah. it, someone's reality of, of, of living like that. And she, her paintings just completely. I sit in them often and I ta even tattooed her on my leg. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it it seems like creativity and art was her lifeline. And in a way, it's become yours too, you know. Um, we haven't talked about your art and how yeah. you funneled a lot of time into that. And you had lots of time to do that when you've been bedbound and stuff. And um, so, yeah, what a perfect sort of role model and person to look to. Yeah. This is the part of the podcast where we get to listen to a story of someone else who's glittered a turd. Um, they are sent to us through voice notes. And this is one from Alexandra. Hi Chris, um, I love the idea of glittering a turd, making something really rubbish into something actually quite good, so I thought I would share my story with you. Like millions of other women in the UK, I have endometriosis, and the journey to getting a diagnosis was very long and very hard. It took years and years, and along the way I was you know, questioned by medical staff, my sanity was questioned, they thought I was making it up, I was given treatment for every single problem you could think of that I didn't actually need and it was really really difficult so after I was diagnosed with the help of the medical ombudsman 
we had um, new training put forward for GPs so that they understand the signs and symptoms of endometriosis better so that people you know all across the country hopefully won't have to go through what I and millions of other women had to go through it's something that I like to think that hopefully will help and it makes those really hard years kind of feel worth it great can we clap yeah 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 (laughs) I mean what a great story um that is, I mean, I hear it time and time again. I've got so many female friends who feel like they get these kind of symptoms ignored all the time. Um, and it just makes you think, a bit like Copperfield as well, like why does it have to take me and my diagnosis for change to happen? Um, but it only takes one person totally. and uh, a real drive to make change happen. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah, and um, I know. And I, 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 don't you recognise in that that... Um, the looking back on it, it's like I I often think about this. The sort of the the self the the drive for altruism that comes out of the mm-hmm. the bad the turd, yeah. you know, and that like and how uh, she feels, but it makes it sugarcoats what's happened to her. Mm-hmm. You know, you like what you've done. You've gone on to help so many mm-hmm. people, yeah. and does that does I don't know if you would put it like a ratio like how much does the saving of people's lives and i say this too like think of all the people's lives you've saved as, as so many people do mm. you know how, how much does it coats the turd so much mm. right yeah yeah am i making yeah. sense yeah uh, yeah I mean, I, 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 uh, absolutely and the reason i started copperfield is because and the same reason alexandra had to fight for change to happen with endometriosis diagnosis is like it's almost like we didn't have a choice but to do it. See, um, yeah. and um, even though it's great, and I'm so proud that Copperfield existed exists and that it has saved lives, it's almost like, um, but also not doing that would have been okay too. Yeah, and I think so often, especially when we hear these inspirational stories, <laughs> um, I think people can get hung up on like, well, what am I going to achieve? And I think if you can just get through the day, you've achieved a massive thing. Yeah, that's right. I, I think I'm thinking two things at the moment. One is, I, I what you did is go on to help so many other people, just like Alexandra's talking about. I didn't do that myself. I, it took me a long time to realize that actually I wanted to help young drivers. Mm-hmm. I was really fixated on myself, and that was uncomfortable for me. I felt really like I hadn't got my shit together I needed to do something bigger so to your point of that pressure you need to you know you need to be bigger and bigger and bigger and help other people and you need to like save lives and stuff like that and that drive was very much it did exist Um, I think as well though it's one of those things I know that you've said this you wish you didn't have to do Copperfield (laughs) it's like it's a shame you had to why did it have to take my diagnosis for a change to happen Um, but you know the world needs heroes. <laughs> <laughs> don't need, don't need that. Yeah, you do. Absolutely Keep that don't in. Don't, yeah, don't you dare take it out. <laughs> um, no. Um, great. Okay. Well, oh, do you know what? I'm so excited to hear all these stories. Um, yes. You can find a link to Sophie's website um, in the episode notes, as well as links to my socials, uh, website, and more. Um, thank you so much for listening to Glittering a Turd with me, Chris Hanniger. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss all the episodes I have to come. And please leave a review. Five stars only accepted. Um, (laughs) And please spread the word. It's so, so important that people get to hear about this. Can I just say one tiny thank you? Am I allowed at the very end? (laughs) I just, I really... Do you have to have the last word? (laughs) You know me. (laughs) No, I've got the final phrase. I'm going to say after what you're going to say. (laughs) All right?
All right, babe. I just, I'm, I'm so grateful. I honestly, I know we said at the beginning of this podcast we weren't going to do a love in and start yeah. saying how much we love each other. But, but at the um, end, it's fine because by now, but no, listened, everyone's listening. Yeah. No, everyone's turned off anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally, um, I'm so fucking perpetually, like, and endlessly impressed with what you do and how you do it. And you are a role model to me. Not in, in so many ways. Honestly, I watch you from afar and I just like, I take on what you do and I think about the way you approach life. And reading your book, I learned so much about just the how to live a better life. And I mean, I've taken my learnings and I've got where I've got, but you've also really, really taught me such a huge amount. You are such a gift. You really are. So thank you for having me here. And oh my God, I'm, I also want to say, okay. I'm sorry for talking about my bloody self. But I wanted, because I, I, I could sit here and ask you so much and I'd love to. I mean, in my role as a, on the other side of this, I, I don't have this platform to do this, but I would, to sit and One grill you, you will. like this, I just, yeah, you offer so much insight and wisdom. We're so lucky to have you. I love you. Um, Thank you. All of that, likewise for you. How lucky I feel to have women like you in my life. Oh, my God. Um, I feel like we should cheers to that. Cheer. Uh, cheers our waters. Here's our waters to um, not being dead. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. To the next not book. You wouldn't write a book again, would you? Absolutely fucking <laughs> Um, Okay, on that note, guys, check your chest and cheers to being alive. Until next time. Well, uh, there's not a whole heap left for me to say other than thank you so much, Sophie. And by the way, when we recorded this episode, Sophie's book wasn't actually out yet, but it is now. So, I mean, you have to read it. It's eye-opening. It's jaw-dropping. It's called Driving Forwards and available in all good bookshops uh, online and offline. So, um, also, thank you to Alexandra for sharing your turd. And, of course, thank you guys for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.